0: Good morning, everybody. It's always wonderful to uh, be together once again, to worship together, to receive God's Word, uh, and to fight with music stands. This is just going to keep churning, so I'm just going to leave it at that. How about that? All right, excellent. It's great to be with everybody once again this morning, uh, especially as we're, we're going to be starting uh, a brief series going through the, the book of Ephesians. Uh, and just seeing uh, what what paul 's letter to the church in Ephesus speaks to god 's people today um, but get before we get into that uh, I was thinking earlier this week uh, just about the 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 course of of my own life that got me to where I am today as as a, a husband and father and, and a, a believer uh, and Years ago, I I realized that as I wanted to take my ministry more seriously, that I wanted to go to seminary, that I wanted to further my education, that uh, I wanted uh, more tools in the belt, as it were. And so, in 2007, I enrolled at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. The big problem was, I didn't live anywhere near there, and there was no... Uh, uh, student housing on campus, and so I had to figure out, all right, I've been accepted into seminary, where am I going to live? Thankfully, uh, I had a friend in Rock Hill that I had met through mutual acquaintances. Uh, his, his name was Matt, but he had earned the nickname Brother Matt because of, uh, of our affection for one another and, and uh, uh, our, our uh, connection through the faith. And so uh, he had heard that I was looking for a place to live. And so he actually reached out to me because Rock Hill is not that far from Charlotte. And so he reached out and, and said that he had a roommate moving out and that I could take his place. It sounded wonderful. And then he threw in this next line that completely caught me off guard. And he said, I should let you know, I don't really go to church much anymore I'm, I'm more of a moral relativist now. And though his, his exact words, uh, and, and it just kind of took me by surprise. And I would, uh, what? And, and so he, he unpacked this just over the course of our conversation, and he said, well, uh, I, I've just come to this point in my life where I believe that uh, uh, people should just do what they think is right for them, as long as it doesn't interfere with the the rights or the wants of other people. And it kind of, it caught me by surprise, but it made me laugh because I've seen a lot of people live this way, but I've never seen someone so open and honest and just embrace it and say, yeah, this is what I do now. But this is the prevailing philosophy of not just our culture, but of, of human nature. Uh, especially today, there's, there's this overwhelming impact that's been left behind from this, this term called postmodernism that uh, whatever is right for you is right for you, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. But the humor is they're making an absolute truth statement by saying that there is no absolute truth. It's contradictory, it, it defeats itself. But the problem with that line of thinking is how can you be sure of anything? If there's no no such thing as absolute truth, how can you cling to anything being true? And that's one of the things that I love about the Christian faith. is isn't so much that it's just left open to interpretation that whatever you want to believe is okay for you, but that the Christian faith says that there are absolute truths. There is an absolute truth. There are things that you can be sure of and have assurance in. In fact, Scripture provides a firm foundation for the Christian belief, for the Christian faith and worldview. And like a good foundation, it's not just something that automatically overnight, there's this huge structure of belief, but that it's it lays down a foundation and builds upon it. Like the, the, the best and, and most secure and, and firm buildings that we see around us are not the ones that are constructed seemingly overnight, but the ones where they take their time to lay a proper foundation and build upon that foundation level by level. To build something that is secure. And stable. And this is what Scripture provides for the believer. In fact, I would even go so far as to, to say that all people should have a faith built upon what God has provided and communicated through His Word. Because our faith is not something that is just built off of emotions, our feelings. Because emotions change, feelings are fleeting. They come and go, sometimes multiple times during the day. You could be in love with something by morning and by that afternoon, despised by it. Our emotions are often fickle and subject to change. Our Christian faith is not based off of what you think about God, except apart from Scripture. It's not one of those things where well, God told me that I don't really need to go to church, that I get just as much from my, my walks through nature. Which there are ways that God communicates through His creation itself. But He has specifically revealed truth about Himself through His Word. And so if you are coming up with ideas about who God is apart from His Word, I would say that that is not a healthy and firm foundation for faith. But our faith is built upon what God has communicated. In fact, in another letter that Paul wrote uh, to Timothy, actually, in Second Timothy 3.16, he says that all of Scripture, everything, Genesis through Revelation, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That all of Scripture is good for these things and gives you a firm foundation to build upon. And here in Ephesians chapter 1, I know it's a larger chunk than we typically walk through at a time, but it's a cohesive thought because Paul is introducing his letter and laying a foundation, and we see that a foundation for biblical faith is presented in three ways. First, in, cha- in verses 1 through 14, that it is a faith that is built in the Lord. Second, in verses 15 through 19, that it is a foundation that is built in love. And third, in verses twenty through twenty-three, that it is a foundation built in laying down your rights. Before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together, that we can uh, we can sit and pause. And take a break from the distractions of everyday life. That we can sit here and receive Your Word. That we can sing praises and give thanks for what You have done and what You are doing. That we can confess our sin and our rebellion to You. And that You receive us. That You give us assurance. But in this time we pray, God, that You would pour out Your Spirit in this place that You would bring uh, Your truth, that You would speak through me that I am not any more holy or righteous than any person here, but God, that You would speak through me as Your mouthpiece, that Your truth, Your Spirit would communicate Your Gospel in this time. And we pray all of this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Now since we're starting a new series going through the book of Ephesians, the, uh, I just want to give you a, a quick little background info and recap on what we're getting into here. Uh, the letter to the, uh, uh, the Ephesians is actually a letter to a church, or the church, in Ephesus. Uh, and this, at the time, it was located in Asia Minor, which is today uh, uh, on the, the coast of Turkey, um, modern day Turkey. Uh, and it's just across from the biblical uh, uh, a- Achaia. I'm trying to remember that uh, Achaia, which is now modern day Greece. And so it's, it's part of that Mediterranean culture, uh, but also uh, just where it was located on the coast, that it was a port city, that it was very uh, a wealthy community. But this, that this was a church church. Uh, That was founded in an area where people could easily come and go. And it was a great place to plant a church because it helped the church spread the gospel by people coming and going. That it could bring people in, equip them with the gospel, and then send them out. And Paul's letter, or uh, his intent for this letter, is not so much a letter of correction as we've seen in some of other uh, of the letters written by Paul, where he's specifically writing saying, no, I've heard this about going on, we need to address that. That's not what Paul is doing here. In fact, it seems that Paul is writing this letter uh, during one of his times of imprisonment, and he just wants to give them an update, this is what's going on. I want to thank you for what you have been doing for the ministry, and here is what the Lord is doing in me and in his kingdom right now and He starts off this letter uh, uh, with a common introduction it's we, when we write letters today for those of you that actually still actually write letters uh, or, or even if you still write emails instead of just texting or tweeting people. But for those of you that actually write some form of letter, we're accustomed to uh, the, uh, addressing someone at the beginning, but then we put our name at the end. Well, the letter writing method of this time, people would actually introduce their letter by saying, this is who I am. So if I were to write you a letter today, I would say, from Tom. To the Church of Two Rivers. We don't really write like this today, but it was common in that time, and so Paul introduces himself and his qualifications for bringing this gospel to them. And then he goes into a blessing, as well. It was common in the the letter writing structure after you introduce yourself, address who you're writing to, that you would give some kind of greeting of blessing. But in this blessing, instead of saying, "I'm going to,", to pray for blessing upon you moving forward, he is actually reminding them of the blessing that God has already done. And so, he moves from the blessing into helping them realize that a firm foundation of faith is built in the Lord. And more specifically, built upon Jesus Christ Himself. Again, this blessing is not asking for uh, God to bless the, the the church and what they are doing at this time or moving forward, but He's reminding them of what God has already done in them. In fact, reading through this section, I don't know if you noticed during the scripture reading, but the phrase "in Him" or "in Christ" is repeated several times—eight times, in fact—that in these in these verses from between verse three and verse fourteen, Paul reminds the church. That their faith and their status before God is in Christ. And he's hammering that repeatedly over and over again. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That this blessing was not just some random thing that God decided to pour out on random people, but this blessing comes through the very person and work of Jesus Christ. Moving on in verse 4, that even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him to love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of of His glorious grace which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That before time began, God chose His people to be in Christ. And that this isn't just some, well, I'm going to choose these people and I'm, going to make their, I'm just going to make their lives better. No, God chose His people and His church Before the foundation of time, before creation existed, God chose His people to to be predestined to adoption. He chose people to call His own. To say, these are my sons and my daughters. That these are my people. And that out of all of creation, these are the ones that I am calling to myself. That they will be my family, my children, co-heirs with Christ. In verse 7, in Him, uh, that's Christ again, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That in Christ alone is where the church finds redemption and forgiveness according to the riches of His grace. That it's not something that is earned. That it's not something that can be bought but that in Christ alone these things are found. You can't do enough good things. The church or God's people could not make enough sacrifices. They could not memorize enough Scripture. But that it is in Christ redemption and forgiveness is found. Moving on to verse 8, which He lavished upon us all, this redemption and forgiveness in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. That this plan of God's was to call His people to Himself to make them His children. To make the wrong things right. And to bring unity. This is God's plan in Christ. Not to have division and dissent, but to have unity and one people under the banner and headship of Jesus Christ that we find our identity in Him. And in verse 11, in Him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That our inheritance, our hope for a future, is found, again, not in the things that you can accomplish, not in the things that you can do. You can't make God happy enough or love you enough to say, All right, well, now I'm going to give you something to hope for. But that in Christ, you find your hope for the future. You find your inheritance in Him. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory, and in Him, You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That in Christ, that you were given the Holy Spirit, not just as a a connection to God, but that the Spirit Himself is the guarantee of, of your inheritance, that the Spirit is why you can have assurance in the promise of things to come. The Spirit is there as as a guarantee, as a promise that God won't take these things away, but that God will continue to deliver for His people as He has always delivered for His people. Earlier, I mentioned my, my friend Matt, the moral relativist who reflects the world that we live in today. And I often think about these things. Uh, I, I remember him specifically, which, quick side note, he actually has come back to the church and it's a much happier story now. But that was a very difficult time in his life and it was mostly because he had chased a girl out of the church. But anyway, that's a whole separate story. But... I think about just the concept of moral relativism and this, this thought that, well, whatever you want to choose is good for you, and however you want to identify yourself is good for you as long as it doesn't affect me or what I believe. And we see this a lot in our culture, and instead of actually bringing people together or making people happier, it's bringing more chaos and confusion and fighting and arguing. Because we, instead of people finding unity in just believing whatever, we see arguing and fighting daily between people that identify themselves as Democrats or Republicans or liberals or conservatives or whatever nationality that you come from. That there is division between those that identify them, that, are, that find their identity and their, uh, their status as a student, or a husband, or a wife, or a parent, or a child. That there is division in these identities. In our culture today, I actually looked this up, and I actually could not find a, a definite answer, but in our current view, or the world's current view of gender itself, apparently Uh, According to the internet, there are anywhere between 63 and 112 ways that you can identify your gender. And instead of bringing people together, all of these uh, moral, relativist ways to identify yourself has just pushed people further apart But according to Scripture, the foundation for the faith and the identity of the believer is not found in how you identify yourself, but your identity is found and founded in Christ. Regardless of who you vote for or what country you come from, where, what neighborhood you live in, what school you attend, what job you have, the core of your identity is in Christ. That in Christ you are chosen. You were adopted and redeemed and forgiven. You're part of God's plan in Christ. That we are united in Christ. That in Christ you have an inheritance. In Christ you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The things of this world will fade away. They cannot save you. In fact, Jesus Himself says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. That in a world and a time where people are trying to find their identity and their their hope and their belief system in anything but God, And believing that you can believe in anything but God, we still have to wrestle and deal with Jesus Himself, saying there are not many paths to God, and that I am one of a I am a way, one of many ways. Jesus says, I am the way to God. That Jesus is is setting himself up as an absolute truth statement, saying that there are not many paths that you can take, but that I am the way and the truth and the life. Christians have really gotten themselves a bad rap today culturally and a not for the right reasons. I think a lot of people in the church, instead of fighting for truth and the Gospel, the reason that so many Believers in so many churches have gotten a bad rap and a bad reputation, is because we are finding our identity in anything other than Christ first. I've, I've seen so many people trying to find their identity, and regardless of who you vote for, but that they believe themselves to be an American first who just happens to be a Christian are that you are a whatever first. Whatever you find your identity, that you find that first and you just happen to be a Christian. But according to Scripture, the core of your identity, the core of your faith is that you are a Christian first who just happens to live in America. Who just happens to vote for this person. Who just happens to have this job. Who just happens to go to this school. A firm foundation for faith has to be built upon Christ first. And so, what about you? Are you a fill in the blank who just happens to be a Christian? Are you a Christian who happens to be whatever you are right now, who just happens to be living here in South Carolina? United States of America, who just happens to vote for whatever belief system or political system that you you vote for, what is the root of your identity and the foundation of your faith? And if that truly is the foundation and the core of your identity and faith, how does that change the way you approach your faith? The way you talk about your faith. Even the very way that you view yourself in light of that faith. But when you see that your identity is found in Christ alone and Him first and foremost, it's easier to see that a firm foundation for faith is built in love. Paul goes on after his little theology lesson there. In verse 15 he says, For this reason because i have heard of your faith in the lord jesus and your love toward the saints he he specifically mentions their love toward the saints the church so that they have a love for others that it is not a love for self it's easy for church church is to become almost like a club where we love doing things together, but easily forget and neglect that that love is supposed to be reflected outwards. And so Paul specifically mentions the love that they have for the saints. And he goes on, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That this love, he he gives thanks for them That He prays for them. Not just prayers that they would have an easy life, that their their faith would uh, just be comfortable, but He prays specifically for, in verses 17-19, through that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? His prayers for them are for wisdom, for revelation, that their hearts would be enlightened, that they would, have, uh, that they would know hope, that they would know the riches and the power of this God who has brought them into Christ. Those are the prayers that He has for the people that He loves. Yesterday, I actually had the opportunity to take my my goddaughter uh, out for some ice cream. And, and it was a wonderful time for me. Uh, she's actually uh, she's 16 now. But whenever I see her, I still... I, I still remember holding her as a baby. I still remember going to publix with her on my shoulders and her dropping cookie crumbs in my hair. like I still see that precious child when I see her as a, a teenager, going into her her senior year in the fall, and it, it blows my mind. but she actually she has her first ever official boyfriend now. And so uh, he actually came along, and so I got to meet him and, and talk with him as well but aside from me playing the, the role of the protective godfather and just asking him awkward questions. Uh, but we're sitting there eating ice cream, and I actually asked them, I said, so have you guys used the L word yet? Do you tell each other that you love each other? And, and I was making it sound really sappy and cheesy, but, but it was so cute just to see their, their affection for one another. But it made me think of even my first girlfriends, that... Uh, uh, when I thought that we were so in love that nothing would tear that love apart. But when I look back on it now, I think and I remember that that love was based on how she made me feel. That love was not uh, uh, my desire for her to grow and be a better person. My, my, My love was not for her to grow in faith, my love was because I liked the way I felt when she was around. And granted, there, there is an aspect of that to relationships. If, if you hate yourself when someone that you are with, that's probably not healthy. But, but if your love for that person does not include a desire for them to grow and to, to flourish and to be better then it's not love, it's infatuation. In fact, Paul, who writes many letters of our New Testament, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter, that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That a true love is not self-focused, but it's outward focused. A true love is a love for others to build them up to see their growth, to see them improve. And in verse 16, Paul is giving thanks and praying for these people because of his love for them. And so I have to ask, how does your faith shape how you love? Does your faith drive the way that you love? Not just the people that are nice to you, but how does your faith shape how you love the unlovable? The homeless guy on a sign that so oftentimes we just drive by because we're not sure if they're actually homeless or they just need some money for liquor. Does your faith shape how you love that person? Does your faith shape The people that disrespect you, the people that are rude to you, the the co-worker who always feels like they're talking behind your back, the the student or the, the other kid in that class that you just feel like they're always trying to belittle you, they're always making fun of you. Does your faith shape how you love the people that you don't like? Because if your faith does not drive you to love outwardly, you have to get back to the foundation. Because you're, we love outwardly because that is the love that the Father showed to you and to me. That back in, in the beginning of this chapter in, in verses 4 and 5, it says that God in love predestined us to adoption as children of God. That in love, when you and I were still enemies of God, when we were spitting in God's face and His authority, that He sent His Son holy and blameless as a perfect sacrifice to take the punishment for your sin. That even when you did not deserve it, you did not earn it, He loved you first. And that understanding, that foundation is what should drive the believer, you and me, to love the unlovable. Not because they have done anything to earn it, but because God loved you first. Your faith is shaped by your identity in Christ. And that shapes how you love and who you love and why you love. Because God loved you first. And so because a firm foundation is built in the Lord and in love, we also see here in Ephesians 1 that a firm foundation for faith is built in laying down your rights. And I've mentioned this before, but one of the great things about Christianity is the fact that other faiths and philosophies are focused on self-improvement. That you have to focus on yourself. That you have to make yourself better. That you have to purify yourself. You have to uh, make atonement yourself. But not Christianity. Our faith, as we see in verse 21, or in verse, starting in verse 20, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That this Jesus who came and died and rose again, did so on your behalf. And He laid down His rights as the Son of God he fully had any right to say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not getting nailed to a cross. I'm not dying for people that are spitting in my face. And He laid down His rights. And as Paul wrote in Philippians, that He became obedient even to the point of death. That Jesus, after His in Him actions listed earlier in the chapter of choosing God's people and and securing an inheritance for them. After all these things that He did in His earthly ministry, He sits in authority at the right hand of God. And going on in verse 22, and He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and all. That all things in creation are under His feet and that He is the head of the church and just as your own head directs your body where to go and your body is in submission to what your head says, to where your thoughts take you, the church is in submission to Christ. Or should be at least. That we are placed in a, a position where we are called to obedience. That we are called to submit ourselves and lay down our rights to follow where Christ is leading. That we go where He tells us to go. That we love who He tells us to love. And this might actually be the most difficult part. Because in our hearts... If you're honest with yourself and that your sin and your brokenness, we love Jesus as Savior, but we struggle with Jesus as Lord. We love to hear about a God who saves us from sin and calls us his children, but we do not like to hear about a God who rules in authority and that we have to give up our rights. Because in our rebellious hearts, in our culture of individuality, we want to roam free and do what we want. We want to live practically as moral relativists. And I know that there was like a collective chuckle when I mentioned that at the beginning of the sermon. But that's how we want to live our lives. We want to live our lives in such a way that we can choose what is best for us. But Scripture calls us To lay down our rights. Scripture calls us to let go of these things. And Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 9 If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself the christian faith is about humility and meekness and it's hard to tell that culturally sometimes because we look around and it seems like a lot of christians are just engaged in this huge shouting match of who interprets scripture best do you sing hymns or praise songs? Do you, do you dunk or do you sprinkle? There's some even, and a few years ago, there was a huge church, or a huge church, there was a huge battle and argument, even in, over the way that you take communion are you allowed to dip your bread or not? That was an actual argument that people were shouting at each other. We're known far too often as Christians what we are against instead of what we are for. And Scripture says to take up your cross daily, to die to yourself because you are not the author and perfecter of your life and your faith. That Christ is the head of the body of the church. That we submit to to His authority, His leadership, and His rule. The faithful life of a Christian is a life of sacrifice and submission. And I know that doesn't sound exciting or glamorous. But in view of what God has done for you and for His people and for His church, that is the proper response to a holy God who calls you His own. To say, you are not just my Savior, but you are my Lord. And this sacrifice and submission, this humility, I've heard it described that it is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. That you do not come to see yourself as despicable and wretched, but that you take your focus off of yourself and this God who calls you His own. And so I have to ask, how submissive is your heart? Who is the final authority or who is the first place in your life? Because you see what truly matters to you and who you submit to in who you submit to. Whoever's authority you obey is where your heart is. And so, where is your heart today? Are you trying to live your life as a moral relativist? Trying to figure out what is best for you and that you decide how to shape your own faith? Are you building your faith on the firm foundation of of what God has communicated about Himself? Are you building your faith upon the foundation in Christ, in love, and in laying down your rights to the God who calls you child? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, You are our Father. You call us Your children, not because we've done anything to earn it, but God, because it pleased You to make us Yours in Christ. And so God, as we examine our hearts, as we look at our own faith, we pray that You would help us to test our foundation, that we would find and build our faith, not in our feelings or our emotions, not whatever we think is best that day, but God, that our foundation That our faith would be built in Christ alone. And that our identity in Christ would shape us and lead us to love and to lay down our rights. Because that is how You loved us in Christ. Remind us of that love and lead us to share it with everyone we meet. We pray in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen.